Well, quite a fall in the Aussie dollar this morning. Why? A weak China? Something in the RBA minutes? Well, it's certainly not in response to a surge in the US dollar, so we'll look at that today. And UK CPI today, down a little, presumably, but down enough to calm the BOE down a bit. And Jerome Powell in front of a House committee today. Will he give anything away? Anything new? Could he accidentally slip out of central bank speak momentarily? We'll find out. It's Wednesday, the 21st of June, 2023. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. And don't forget, if you are an Australian fixed income investor, if you haven't voted yet in the Kanga News Survey, which is your chance to show your appreciation for the work of NAB Research, including this podcast, then uh, there's a link in the email if you're subscribed to the email. It's not too late to do it, but it will be soon. So we'd appreciate your vote. Now, this morning, not much movement in the US dollar or the euro, but the Aussie dollar down 1%, down to 67.8 US cents. The pound is down 0.3%, the Japanese yen up 0.4%, and the CNY down a quarter percent, more than 7.18 CNY to the dollar now. The US stock market uh, was back open, but not happy. We've got a 0.7% fall in the down, 0.4% off the S&P, and 0.2% off the NASDAQ. The same for Europe. Prices down there with more than half a percent off the DAX, a quarter percent down for the FTSE 100. And bond yields getting lower, down three for 10 years in the US, down 16 for US. UK 10-year gilts. Two years are down uh, more than 14 basis points as well. And down 11 for 10-year bunds in Germany. And oil down further as well, 1.8% off WTI, which traded below $70 for a spell and a quarter percent off Brent, below 76 now. And it's Tapas Strickland joining me today from NAB in Sydney. Uh, an obvious first question, Tapas, uh, given all those market moves. Why the big fall in the Aussie dollar? Good morning, Phil. Yes, a very large fall in the Aussie today and really driven by a combination of two factors. So the first one was the RBA board minutes were not as hawkish as most people were probably expecting. And the second one is just weaker sentiment out, out of China. And you mentioned how the yuan was down by about a quarter of a percent. And that seems to be spilling over to both the Australian dollar and also the Kiwi. So just covering off on China first, um, the Chinese banks reduced their one-year and five-year loan prime rates yesterday by 10 basis points, but there was some expected expectation that the five-year loan prime rate would be cut by 15 basis points, so um, a little bit less than what some people had been expecting. And then in addition to that, on Friday... China's State Council had met and there'd been a lot of background briefing to the international press that China was thinking of undertaking um, a whole swathe of stimulus measures and yet at that State Council meeting on Friday nothing was, was announced. Instead they just said policies that meet the necessary conditions should be promptly unveiled and implemented without delay but go but gave no specifics. So um, it's been a couple of days since that. Um, and I think people are starting to doubt a little bit exactly what kind of magnitudes of fiscal stimulus we're actually talking about coming right. out of China. So that has weakened sentiment. And we'll talk about the RBA minutes in just a moment. Just quickly on China, though. So how much of this sort of like the delay in China fully getting back on its feet? How much of that is impacting the rest of the world? Because we always sort of look to China for its disinflation impact. You know, they were they were shipping cheap stuff and now supply chains have have shifted. We possibly will never buy as much again, perhaps. Uh, and so we, you know, so we're, can we actually see inflation coming down significantly without having that disinflation impact from China coming back again? Well, I think you are having that disinflation impact coming from China, even though um, we haven't had too much in terms of uh, fiscal s- stimulus there. And that's mainly because of the weak kind of global economy that we do have at the moment. And you look at the recent Chinese PPI and the CPI, they're at very, very weak rates of growth. So that does suggest China is ex- 
exporting disinflation to the rest of the world, particularly in the good side. And uh, just worth mentioning, actually, the uh, Philly Fed non-manufacturing survey, it's not a really closely watched survey, but it does have a few questions on prices, and that came out last night. And uh, interestingly, the prices paid index uh, decreased by 21 basis points to its lowest reading since October 2020. So it does suggest at least on the good side, there is some uh, disinflation occurring. And then this survey is one of the few surveys in the US that actually asks questions of firms prices received um, or prices charged and that index actually fell to its uh, first negative reading since August 2020. Um, So it does suggest that um, in the background there some of those surveys are pointing towards um, some pretty rapid disinflationary narratives. Right now the RBA minutes yesterday let's talk about those because the minutes, uh, you look at them and you wonder whether they actually uh, reflect the same meeting uh, for the press conference that followed or the statement, because, I mean, it was certainly much less hawkish as though they are, you know, they're talking the talk publicly, but, uh, you know, behind the scenes, maybe they're not really quite prepared to walk the walk. Yeah, I think it adds to the confusing messaging that we've basically seen from the RBA over the past six months. And there may be some sympathy for that. As you get uh, higher in your rate hike cycle, you want to be a little bit more cautious. So the debate becomes more evenly balanced between uh, hiking or pausing. But importantly, uh, in this meeting minutes, the reason why the market reacted as it did was because there was no mention of the some further tightening maybe needed in the minutes. But just worth noting mm. that it was there in the post-meeting statement and was also mentioned in a subsequent speech. So it's not really clear exactly how much we should read into it. But it is worth noting that a version of that statement that some further tightening may be needed had been in every single minute since the RBA started its rate hike cycle uh, in May 2022. So exactly what we read into that is a little bit un- uncertain. And then the second one is, and uh, being English is your primary uh, language, uh, Phil, you might be able to help me here. There was some ambiguous phrasing that uh, could imply a pause was more likely in July, and that surrounded this sentence. And it was in light of these considerations, members discussed the possibility of holding the cash rate unchanged at this meeting and then reconsidering at subsequent meetings with the benefit of additional data. So you could read that possibly saying, well, if the RBA hiked in June, then uh, a pause in July is more probable. So Yeah, but, but with the caveat about data. And, and of course, you know, we the data has not been good, has it? Because we've, as far as they're concerned, because we, you know, particularly with the, with the strong jobs market. So... It's not really saying anything. I mean, they might have considered a pause, but it doesn't mean that they're going to now because the data could tell them otherwise. Uh, at least the market reacted as as giving an indication of a possible pause. So you saw a rally in Aussie rate futures led by front end bills, mm. and they were up by about eight to nine basis points at the highs. And when you look at July market pricing, it's now around 12.5 basis points priced, and uh, two full rate hikes have been pushed out in terms of fully pricing to November, whereas previously they were fully priced by, by October. Right. So two, so two more hikes. I mean, now NAB's expectation is 4.6%, which would be two more hikes. But there are some people saying, well, no, it's going to be more than that, you know, even getting north of 5% or even up to 6%. But yeah, so we, we still think the RBA will hike rates in July and in August. And um, as I was saying, it's unclear exactly how much you should actually read, read into that. And just worth noting, the minutes themselves did say that the governor would be giving a speech which would flesh out the board's thinking in further details. And that speech was actually hawkish. So uh, to us, we don't read too much into those minutes and indeed if anything um, when you looked into the details of the minutes there's some pretty hawkish tones there and the one that I just wanted to focus our listeners attention to is the one on inflation expectations and we mentioned this in our talk about the post meeting statement how 
the RBA had omitted the phrase of inflation expectations being well anchored, um, and that was also omitted in, in the minutes. And indeed, they talked about the possibility of implicit indexation of wages to pass high inflation and for the potential for this to become widespread. And then the second one is, and I find this really in, um, interesting, particularly in this debate about what's driving inflation, is it wages or profits? But some firms were indexing their prices either implicitly or directly to past inflation. And uh, these developments create an increased risk that high inflation would be persistent. So that does suggest the RBA does need to do more. Our peak is 4.6%. But if those um, uh, inflation expectations becoming de-anchored are being realized, then we're probably talking about a world of a higher terminal rate than 46 Greedflation is what they're calling that, isn't it? Where companies are just pushing it up because the prices are going up and they think they can get away with it. So it's not just wages, is it? But look, uh, Michelle Bullock was talking about wages, wasn't she, in a speech she gave yesterday. It was called Achieving Full Employment, uh, which, you know, many would say, well, we, we, if we're not there now, when will we? But uh, she said we need to see unemployment rise to contain inflation. And we need to get back to full employment. So obviously she thinks we're well beyond full employment. And so then we get back to the whole question about Nairu, the sort of the rate of unemployment, which is non-inflationary, which some put at four and a half percent, which is, you know, I mean, it was, it was most of the century, of course, the, the unemployment rate's been north of five percent and inflation was low at that level. Uh, but, you know, we're a long way from that. And, you know, estimates of Nairu seem to jump all over the place, don't they? So what was Michelle Bullock really pointing to yesterday? I think it was the first recognition by the RBA that they do need to see the labour market weaken in order to reduce inflationary pressures mm. in the economy. And they've been very hesitant to take that line, whereas other central banks um, have been taking that line more explicitly. So um, her exact quote was, our goal is to return the labour market uh, back to a level more consistent with full employment. And as you noted, Nehru is more around that 4.5%. So the RBA um, wants to see that labour market loosening up. That loosening up will be most prevalent if the unemployment rate rises. And um, she's just giving a little bit more colour in terms of the RBA's thinking there. So um, the yeah. while we're watching, obviously, inflation reports quite closely, next week's uh, monthly CPI indicator will be quite important in terms of whether the RBA hikes in July... Equally as important, according to this speech, is the is the labour market. And wherever you look right around the world, labour markets still are incredibly tight. And I think for central banks to be assured of inflation getting back to target and staying there, they really do need to see some loosening up in those labour markets. Well, and the longer it takes, the more people will be demanding more. So if you had, like, if you just had a very short-term inflation burst over six months, then maybe people could live with it. But when it goes on for a year or two and people start to see prices continually increasing... Oh, indeed, and, and that's been the risk to the RBA's strategy. So Michelle Bullock in that same speech did say the RBA had been taking uh, deliberately different paths to other central banks, taking a more gradual path of getting inflation mm. back to target. But taking a more gradual path risks those inflation expectations becoming de-anchored as uh, firms and individuals Increase. seek to yeah. um, protect their real wages and real profits. And what's interesting about unemployment remaining so low, I mean, it's happening in Australia despite a big uptick in immigration. So up uh, 76% on the pandemic low. So we're more or less back on the trend line that we were on pre-pandemic. And, uh, you know, and we're not seeing that pushing unemployment up at all. I mean, a chunk of it, of course, of that immigration is students. So they're hopefully bringing in money and consuming and not demanding a job. But no impact, really, on the on the unemployment rate, which is what you would have been hoping for, I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting there. And uh, we wrote uh, an Australian Markets Weekly on that. And uh, f feel free to send me an email if you'd like a copy of that. Um, and it just did note that Australia's population is almost 76 
6% back to where a pre-pandemic trend of the population would have been without the pandemic. So that's an interesting point. Um, according to the SEEK data that we look at quite closely, um, where that easing is occurring the most is in Sydney and Melbourne, but in every other state capital, you've got SEEK job ads about 40 to 50% above pre-pandemic levels. So incredibly strong labour demand, and it just shows you that demand is just so strong in this strain economy, it's easily absorbing the increased population growth that we have seen over the past year. Now, US equities falling, uh, of course, they could bounce back again tomorrow. So we shouldn't get too carried away, I guess. But I mean, we have to be close to that point of the, the day of reckoning, don't we? I mean, it, particularly as we start to see earnings slide, which are going to happen shortly. I mean, if the FOMC wants to slow things down, then that's got to be reflected in company earnings, surely. So, uh, you know, why would we see the equity market continue to rise in this environment? Oh, it's a very, very big question. And I indeed have been surprised by the rally, especially this AI-driven rally that we have seen over the past uh, yeah. three or four months. But one interesting observation is when you look at the S&P earnings yield, uh, backward-looking, it's currently 4.77%, and forward-looking, it's 5.3%. You look at that rate of return against the three-month Treasury bill, which is at 5.2%, which is effectively risk-free. I think there will be some people out there asking, well, should you be taking the um, earnings risk? Um, if you can basically earn a risk-free yield at about the same rate. Um, so I think that is just an interesting debate and exactly how that pans out is, is unclear. I think some of the weaker performance in equities overnight may reflect a little bit of um, early asset reallocation moves ahead of month and qu- quarter end. After all, we have seen a very, very strong equity market over the past month and indeed over the past quarter as well. So there might be some reallocation back to bonds in order to meet their uh, strategic allocation goals and and yeah and a safer bet perhaps right now uh u.s housing continues to surprise uh new houses particularly housing starts well only new houses really only uh, new ha- uh, housing starts in uh, may up 21.7 percent month on month building permits are up 5.2 percent month on month so i guess you know the hope is if you start building now by the time you've finished and you're looking for a buyer then interest rates will have come down and clearly building costs aren't as prohibitive as they once were. So maybe there's a bit of expectant demand for the future and uh, and, and latent uh, production based on you know the fact that prices used to be so high for materials. Oh, definitely. That's, prob- that's probably a case there. And just worth noting that 21.7% surge in housing starts was against an uh, expectation of minus 0.1%. So totally blown out <laughs> of the water uh, there. Um, also worth noting that building permits usually... Um, uh, precede starts. So um, 5.2 versus 21.7, it does suggest there's a bit of statistical noise there. So I wouldn't necessarily read too much into it, but it does suggest there is a big dislocation in housing markets, not only in the US, but also globally, where the existing housing market um, has the owners of that existing housing market very reluctant to basically transact. Uh, And so that may uh, support uh, the kind of new housing construction development. It may also be reflective of perhaps financial conditions not being as tight as previously thought, just given you have seen a pretty early stabilization in global housing markets, even though rates are continuing to rise. Yeah, yeah. well, but as we, you know, hopefully, not forever, uh, just for a long time, it seems. Uh, so the UK gets its CPI number today ahead of the Bank of England. So the research firm Kantar uh, tracks UK grocery prices. This has been, the UK press has picked up on this quite a bit because grocery inflation 
according to them, was 17.5% in March, down to 17.2% in April. And yesterday, the figure for May came down to 16.5%. Uh, so you've got that going on, lower prices uh, for, uh, for, for groceries. So maybe that'll be partially reflected in the CPI number. But also, I mean, two-year fixed mortgages in the UK now are already up to 6%. So lots of people have less money to spend. I mean, inflation can't sustain itself, surely. I mean, there's people struggling to pay the bills. So, I mean, the UK inflation rate has to come down quite sharply sometime soon, surely. Uh, hopefully that is the case. Otherwise, the Bank of England will have to keep on hiking uh, in order to reduce the kind of demand pressures in, in the economy. Uh, the consensus for core CPI is for 6.8% year on year, though. Just worth noting, an alternative core inflation measure um, has trimmed mean inflation in the UK at 10.2% year on year. Um, so I think that just highlights the kind of inflation challenges there. But um, if those uh, demand pressures do start to come through, uh, you would expect uh, inflation uh, inflation to, to, to ease back. The key thing for the CPI is if it prints a little bit above expectations, then I think that's going to start markets thinking more that the BOE could hike by 50, 50 basis points. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, retail sales for Canada today as well. And Jerome Powell, very quickly before we finish, he's fronting up to the House Financial Services panel. Uh, so no doubt we will be trying to figure out just how hawkish he is in reality. Oh, definitely. And uh, just worth noting, when you look at market pricing, uh, they're pretty much discounting the June dot plot. I think there's only about a cumulative 22 basis points priced by September, whereas the dot plot had another two hikes for this year and it's going to be really important to see whether the July FOMC meeting is truly live or um, or whether it's more kind of aspirational um, so it will be looking quite closely uh, in terms of what what he says there alright very good uh, catch you next time Tapas thank you cheers thanks Phil and uh, look the Aussie dollar might not be doing too well this morning but I tell you Australia is sport in the UK right now cricket and tennis um, and we won't give too much away well I probably already have uh, but lots to be pleased about uh, that's it for this morning uh, another edition of the morning call tomorrow I'm Phil Dobby for NAB I'll see you then thanks for listening <laughs>